All right, good morning. Welcome to session two, part two of um, the inductive Bible study. This is our How to Study the Bible summer seminar. I hope everybody got a handout thingy there. Um, I'll be following up on what Jared started with last week about the inductive method, um, finishing finishing up that part, and then uh, we have more to talk about over the next uh, four weeks or so about how to study the Bible better. So before we we get started, uh, let's pray first. Father, we thank you for um, this day. Thank you for the chance we have to come and learn about your word, learn about how we can better study and equip ourselves to understand it. I pray that you'll guide us this morning, and uh, may it be all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, if you weren't here, we started talking about this thing called the inductive Bible study method. And inductive means from the bottom up. It's like saying we start at... um, the very singular things and try to come to an idea of the whole, right? You come to, it's kind of backwards from deductive, where deductive starts with some great universal truth and then tries to figure out things about it, right? So if uh, Sherlock Holmes was doing it, he would say, deductive, there's a murder, we're deducing all the facts about the murder. Inductive is more like, look at all of these facts, look, we've discovered that there's a murder from them, right? That's inductive reasoning. So, um, inductive has three steps. Three steps to the inductive Bible study method. Those three steps are observation, interpretation, and application. Okay? So, Jared started last week. He talked about observation and interpretation. But I want to cover those again really quick in case you weren't here or in case you forgot everything that he said. Um, And so, uh, you have a place on your uh, handout there for you to jot down some notes really quick. Observation. First point here, observation, is the process where we look at the text, see what it says, who it's about, what it's about, right? We ask these questions, those five W's and an H, the who, what, when, where, why, and how, okay? It's the process of just trying to understand what the text says. Uh, A few points you could do, you could make marks, mark key words in the passage, Um, You can identify the key people, the key places, the key events, the subjects, mark them. Um, Watch for patterns, right, like comparisons uh, or parallelisms, you know, parallel phrases, contrasts, that kind of thing. Uh, Mark linking words like and, but, or all that kind of thing. Uh, Maybe note uh, allusions to other passages. So if you're reading through and it says, you know, he's citing somebody else, make a note of that, go see what that says kind of thing. Mark terms of conclusion like therefore or thus, that kind of thing. Those are all tools you can use uh, in observation. Of course, you could also um, make it, and lists from the text. One of the things Jared talked about last week is uh, writing down lists on a separate you know, sheet of paper saying, okay, who are the people? What do I know about them? What is the place? What do I know about it? What's the topic? What's the main thrust? What's the point of this passage? That's the whole thing you're trying to do with observation is just get an understanding of what it says. In interpretation, now you've gathered this data through observation. Interpretation is the process of figuring out what that stuff that you observed actually means. Okay, so you have this, the, the data, the points. Now you're trying to determine what, what do they mean? What's the point of them? So a few things to remember with interpretation. Uh, context is everything, Okay. We cannot interpret Scripture in some kind of vacuum and just imagine that this one passage only is what it is, right? It exists within the context of a a paragraph. It exists within the context of a book, 
which exists within the context of an entire 66 books, right? So we have to recognize that there is a context for everything that we're reading and not try to take any one verse out of that context. Uh, another important thing of interpretation is let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's really crazy when you try to just put your own ideas onto a passage, right? The Bible is really good at helping us understand what the Bible means. So if something's obscure or hard to understand, interpret it in light of clearer, more easy-to-understand passages. Of course, that means that you should never, like, lose <laughs> core doctrines because of some obscure, uh, you know, passage that's difficult to understand. We can't just sacrifice what we uh, know is true um, because something's difficult in one place. Always remember that you're interpreting Scripture according to the author's intent, right? So if they are writing a letter about one thing, maybe, uh, don't make it about something else, right? Keep in mind what they were trying to say. Uh, also, of course, remember the period of redemptive history that the, that was written during, right? If you're studying an Old Testament passage versus a New Testament passage, you have to keep those things in mind. Also keep in mind where you are in that scale of redemptive history, right? That timeline. That changes how we think about a text as well. We always want to think about genre when we're interpreting. Is it a letter? Is it apocalyptic? Is it history? Is it law? You know, what kind of thing are we reading? And then, of course, uh, when you're talking about Old Testament, New Testament, you always want to think of Jesus and the New Testament whenever you're looking at the Old Testament, and you always want to look at the, the New Testament's attitude towards the Old Testament, right? So we're, we're always keep keeping in mind how those two things relate to one another. So observation and interpretation, these two steps uh, are really, really important because the third step, application, what we're going to talk about this morning, doesn't make any sense if you don't do those two first. If you haven't done some observation of a text, if you haven't worked through interpreting it, trying to apply it will be really difficult, right? One, you don't even know what it says. How could you understand how to apply that, okay? But this morning, we're heading to our third step. We're going to spend most of our time putting these three steps together uh, as we look at Jude again. So let's start on application. Of course, application as part of Bible study is really, really, really important. Um, because you may think that, okay, I've observed, I've looked at a text, I've written down a lot of stuff about it, I've interpreted it. And you may think that once you've done those two things that you've studied that text well. You could say, well, I've studied the Bible. Um, and in a sense, I guess you could have, maybe. But unless we apply what we see in that text to our lives, we're not actually doing anything of value, really. Because um, you can observe and interpret any piece of literature, okay? I mean, I have an English degree. I did this a lot in college. Um, we did this. We, we had to look at a text and figure out what it means, understand it. We did a lot of observation and interpretation. But it was never like, okay, now that we've read this novel, I want you to apply it to your life it to my life. I mean, there may be some, you know, kind of ideas or themes or, you know, it may be like a, a fable where it could like teach me a life lesson kind of thing that I could maybe apply to my life. But for the most part, right, I'm not reading through um, Moby Dick and then saying like, how can I be more like these guys? Like, I don't know. That's not, that's not, that's not what we do with literature, okay? But with the Bible, it's different. We observe, we interpret, and then we apply it to our lives. We have to do that when it comes to the Word of God. A great verse to remind you, the value of application, on the top of your handout is James 1, 22 through 24. 
But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. So if all you do is read and interpret, right, and never actually apply it, it's just like you looked in the mirror and then walked away. And then in a little while, you'll forget everything about it, right? Nothing has changed. When we look in a mirror, we look at it and we say, oh, wow, I look really bad. I need to do something about that, right? And you apply what you see to, to fixing you in some way. That's what Scripture should do for us. It should prompt us to change. And I'm guessing that you don't spend time studying your Bible with the express purpose of not applying it to your life. That would be pretty ridiculous, right? Why would you do that? Uh, but what are things, let's just think about some things that keep us from applying Scripture well. Number one, we don't understand it well. One of the big reasons why we don't apply Scripture well is because we don't understand what the Scripture says. And that's where steps one and two come in. You need to observe and interpret. Otherwise, you can't apply. Another way that we don't apply it well, another reason, uh, we don't take enough time to actually think hard about how that Scripture connects to our lives. Maybe we're too tired. Maybe we're too distracted. Maybe we don't make enough time for it. Um, and you can't say, I've, I've been studying the Bible if you just read it. That's not studying, right? That's just reading. There's, there are different things. Another way that we, another reason we don't apply Scripture well, um, maybe we have an unwillingness to actually consider a certain sin pattern in our life. Maybe we uh, look at the Bible as affirming us rather than changing us. If you're just reading the Bible looking for encouragement to make you feel better about yourself, then you're going to miss a lot of the really important things that it has to say about who you are and a lot of the ways that you need to change because of it. Another thing that keeps us from applying Scripture well, um, we only ever try to really apply Scripture individually rather than doing it with somebody else who can maybe see something in our lives that we don't see. Right? This is why accountability or Bible studies in groups are really helpful uh, because they'll bring up some topic, some idea, some struggle maybe they've had, and you'll go, oh, wow, I have that too. Or maybe if you have a good discipling relationship, somebody will just say, hey, you really seem to be struggling with this thing. And you're going, wow, I did not realize that at all. Another reason why we struggle to apply Scripture, we're just kind of not very introspective sometimes. Uh, maybe not very honest about who we really are. Um, and so we have a hard time seeing what we're really like. Maybe we just kind of have this vision in our minds of who we think we are. Um, and we have to be honest with ourselves if we want the Scripture to be able to, to, to change us like it should. So our job in the next few minutes is to think about how we can apply Scripture well. That's the point of this, this time this morning. So uh, first, we're going to look at some questions for application, what kind of questions, and then we'll actually look at um, applying it. We'll actually do some applying. First, the questions. We're going to go through these kind of quickly because we're going to spend more time with them uh, later, uh, actually, you know, t working with them. Um, but I just want to go over them real quick. So questions as you're studying a passage. Number one, does it point out sin in my life? And I'll tell you, this has been one of my like, most favorite things about getting to write the prayers of confession that we do every week, um, because I get to read the passage that we're you know, studying that week and think about what sin it points out in my life or in the lives of the church, right? I, I, it's, and it's very convicting every time, and it's really helpful to see how the Bible convicts us, how it points out sin in our lives. So I'd really encourage you, if you have never done that before, because as you're reading a passage, maybe write out a prayer, like, you know, of confession. What can you confess that this, this text has pointed out? Number two, what assumptions does it have that I don't share? Um, maybe it's uh, assuming 
that God is one way and you thought he was another way. Maybe it's assuming that you're one way and you thought you were another way, right? So you have to line up. You have to recognize like they're starting in a different place and get to that place too because you want to share assumptions with Scripture. You don't want to have a different starting place. That's a bad place to be. Number three, is there a command to obey in this passage? Is there an imperative? Is there something it's telling you to do? That's easy enough. Number four, is there an encouragement in this text, right? This is what some people call the indicatives, right? Where it's a statement of who you are, maybe. Not what you need to do, but this is who you are in Christ, right? This is what God has done for you. That would be an encouragement. Look for those things. Number five, is there a promise for me? Is there something in this text that is a promise from God to me or to his church that I can count on, that I can rely on? Number six, does it teach me something about God? Really important, we have to recognize that Scripture is the only way that we understand anything about God, right? So we're always looking at every passage and saying, what does it tell me about who God is? What does it teach me about His attributes? Number seven, does it teach me something about myself? And this is one where we often struggle, right? It's really easy to see who God is, but sometimes we'll forget that we need to think about who we are too. Number eight, what evidence for my faith does it give me? Right? What kind of uh, proof or what kind of uh, confidence does it give you that your faith is true, that the scriptures are, are accurate, that God is real? Uh, number nine, what will I do differently today because of this text? Okay, and this is really where you start applying. That's kind of a key, key question there, right? What am I going to actually do? How is this going to change me? What, what is my life going to look like now that I've read this, that I've understood it, that I see what God has told me? Number 10, how can I model, share, teach this truth to encourage others? This is discipleship. How can you use this text? How can what you're reading right here, how can you apply it to somebody else's life, right? How can you help show what this text means to someone else? And then finally, number 11, how could, I, how could my family or church apply this text? And this is just thinking more in a corporate mindset, right? We think about ourselves personally, and then we think, okay, how can my family as a whole do this thing better? How can we apply this text to our lives? And then how can our church as a whole better apply this text? And sometimes that means saying like, hey, I feel like we haven't been doing this. I've been reading this passage. It says we need to be doing this. Are we not doing this well enough, right? We need to talk about those kind of things. Before I go on, any questions about those things? The questions of application there? How much time do I have? Not enough, I'm sure. Oh, golly, okay. All right, here's some guidelines for applying Scripture well. Some basic guidelines. Pray first. Before you start trying to read, interpret, whatever, do anything with Scripture, always pray first. Um, God has, has told us we need to pray for spiritual sight to see the truths in his word. He's very clear about it. Psalm 119 is a great prayer uh, uh, about this, right? Especially verse 18, um, this is what it says. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We always want to pray that God will help us understand and help us apply whatever we're reading in Scripture. Number two, take time to actually think about it. And this is the, probably the hardest one of all of this. Right, because sometimes, most of the time, maybe it's the morning and uh, there are children screaming. Uh, maybe you didn't get enough sleep and you want to sleep in some. Uh, maybe, I, you know, I could go on with a thousand other reasons why it's hard for us to take time to sit and think. Um, and that's okay, but plan to try at least to normally have enough time to actually let the Word of God sit on your heart. Sometimes I think one of the best ways to do this is to, to go in smaller chunks, 
right? We have this thing of like, I'm going to read the Bible in a year or something like that. And then by the time you're finished reading, you've spent 15 minutes, 20 minutes reading the Bible that morning, and you didn't have any time there, right? Because that's, that's the time you've allotted maybe. You have other things you have to do. Now I don't have time to actually think about it. Let it rest on me. Let, let me consider it. There's too much to talk about, too much to think about. So maybe do a Bible reading and then maybe read one verse, maybe within that passage, one verse separately, whatever else, and actually just really consider it. Even if it's just kind of for the rest of the day, you're just kind of thinking about it. Maybe print it out and put it somewhere that you see it again and again and again. Fighter verses are great for that kind of thing. Plan and try to think over what you've read in Scripture because letting it, meditating on it is, is one of the most important parts to being able to apply it to your life. Number three, write. Um, write down what you're thinking as you're thinking it. And it's, I mean... Countless studies have been done about the, the helpfulness of writing and helping us remember something, helping us, you know, think through something. So just write down your ideas, your notes, what you think about when you're reading a text, uh, or as throughout the day, if something comes to you about it, write it down. That's really helpful. Uh, number four, talk with somebody else about it. Have a conversation about the text that you've been reading. Right? Say, hey, I've been reading this. Uh, and it's been really encouraging to me because of this reason, right? Or uh, it's really convicted me about this. Um, talk to it about your talk to your spouse uh, about it. Talk to your kids about it. Talk to your other Christian friends about it, right? These are the kind of conversations we as believers in the church ought to be having. We should be just talking about Scripture with one another all the time. Um, and you, what, when you're doing that, what you're doing is you're inviting those people to help apply that text to your life, and you're prompting them to apply it to their lives as well. And then number five, listen. After you've spent some time in the text, right, sometimes it's good to just listen to what somebody else has to say about it. That's why, you know, listening to a sermon is really helpful. Um, you can go online. Sermon Audio has a sermon on pretty much any text of the Bible you could think of uh, or read. Um, buy some printed Bibles if you want to. You can probably find PDFs online to just read and see what somebody else said about a text of, of Scripture. Now, if you notice... Uh, several of the things that I just talked about here, we do those here at Christ Community Church regularly, right? During the school year time, when we do our regular expository working through a book of Scripture, this is what we do. We take time to think and write about it, right, over the, over the course of the week where you get a study guide and you work through a passage and you're looking at it, seeing what it says, writing down stuff about it, answering questions, Right? And then you come together at 9.30 and we talk about it with one another. We discuss what we saw, how we understood it better because of that. Uh, and then we listen to someone preach that text to us. Right, So we're getting these, this pattern is happening uh, here in our church. So that's just an encouragement to you. Right, The tools are here. Use them. Take advantage of them. All right, so now, with that said, is that still up there? Good, okay. Um, we're going to take the rest of our time this morning, I think we have enough time, yeah, we'll be good, to actually look at a passage of Scripture and see how this application process works, okay? Um, now, typically, if we wanted to really do this well, we would want to read the passage first all the way through. Um, this is a little bit longer one, because Jared chose Jude for some crazy reason, the entire book. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so we're not going to spend time reading the entire thing, but I'm going to try to mark out for you some of the key ideas here, and I'm not going to be writing on it because he's already done 
the observation interpretation part. You can see there I'm using his text where he's marked everything. All we're going to be doing now is we're going to be looking at the observation interpretation stuff that we have and then seeing how we can apply it, right? This is step three of the process. So just to recap, observation. Who are the people here? We see Jude as one person in this text, the writer of this uh, letter. We see uh, the called right there in verse 1, those who are called, beloved in the Father and kept. And then we see that repeated you, 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 you. That's the recipient of this letter, right? And that's, that is another character here in this, in this text. And then we see a third group, and that is those certain people. You see them there in green, right? Um, and so the three main characters, Jude, the called, the recipient of the letter, you. And we can, we'll get to this in interpretation, but we're going to say that that's also applying to us, right? We are part of that you group. And then we see the certain people who are uh, renamed multiple other horrible names later on. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute, too. All right, what's going on in the passage? We're, remember, we're asking these questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. What's going on? Jude's writing a letter about, uh, he wants to write a letter about the common salvation, uh, but instead he realizes it's really important for him to tell these guys who he's writing to to contend for the faith. Um, why? Because there are certain people who are doing something bad. When are these things taking place? Well, we can assume that this is after the church has been established, right? We know that because there are church people, to, Christians to be written to here. Um, and this is after certain people have snuck in, okay? Um, this is apparently before all of the apostles were dead, we can pretty well assume, um, because most people say, if you do a little bit of reading, Second uh, Peter was written after Jude because Peter seems to borrow some of the phrasing that Jude uses, so... Anyway, that's not really that important right now. But where? Where are the people? We don't really know. Uh, we don't really know who Jude was writing to exactly. Well, all we know is that he was writing to believers. That's all it really says. Somebody, uh, these are Christians uh, who are needing encouragement, needing to know this. It may have been a circular letter that was passed around that area. We're not really sure. Um, it could be an area with a rather high Jewish population because we do see lots of references to the Old Testament. And uh, that may give a clue that that's who he's writing to, but it could also just be a sign that Jude was a good Jew, and that's just what the source material he had to pull from. We don't really know. All right, why? Why is Jude writing this letter? What are his motivations, his purposes? Um, this is where we start to get close to interpretation, right? He wants to appeal to them to contend for the faith. He wants to warn them about false teachers, the certain people who've crept in, and he wants to tell them how they can contend for the faith, right? So those are his main points. That's the goal. That's what the point of this letter is. Contend for the faith, Watch out for false teachers. Here's how you contend for the faith. Go with me on that. Am I boring you incredibly? I'm sorry. Now, interpretation. Remember the genre and the context. This is a letter written to believers. Um, so we have plenty of other letters in Scripture that help us kind of understand this genre, right? We know what a letter's purpose is. We know how to think about this type of thing. We've read Romans. We've read Ephesians. We've read Galatians. We know what letters do. We know their point. We should also address whether or not we can say, okay, when Jude is writing to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, does that include us? And I think that if we can say that every other epistle in the New Testament can be applied to us, that we would certainly say that Jude can. And if we say that they can't be, then why do we have half the New Testament anyway, right? So we have to recognize that we can apply 
the stuff that Paul and Jude and Peter and John wrote to Christians at their time, we can take what they say and apply it to our lives. We have to, that's a point of interpretation that's very important because otherwise it's like, why are we, why are we reading them? Okay? It has to apply to us too. All right, so now that's interpretation a little bit. Uh, Jared did most of that last week, so I won't spend as much of time. Uh, let's get right into application. I don't want to miss out here. So we're just going to kind of work through the questions of application that I gave you earlier and see what we can learn from this text. And this is almost like a glimpse into a sermon preparation, maybe, kind of thing, because this would be kind of the way that you'd go through thinking about a text. All right. Does it point out sin in my life? Okay, let's look. Since we're thinking about sin, uh, we'll quickly notice that there's these certain people, right? And you see those red underlines there where it says condemnation, destroyed, judgment, punishment, ungodly people pervert the grace of our God and sensuality, deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you see blasphemous judgment down there. Okay, that kind of word, that kind of phrasing, right, is used when we're talking about sin. People get judged when they sin, okay? We know that they, these guys are sinning because of all the judgment language associated with them. So we need to ask, what kind of sinful actions are these guys committing these certain people, these green certain people here in the text, what kind of actions are they doing that we might be doing too? And we need to consider, is that a sin in my life that I'm committing? So let's look. In verse 4, you see the ungodly people are perverting the grace of God, denying Jesus. In verse 8, we also see them uh, being superstitious, right? They're relying on dreams. We see them defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, blaspheming glorious ones. Uh, then if we move on to verse uh, 16, let's see, you see them there in verse 16. They're grumblers, they're malcontents, they're following their sinful desires, boasting, showing favoritism, right? And there's several other things we could look at. So the question here would be, you work through this, kind of build your list of what are these sinful people doing and say, am I doing that? Do I do any of these things? Have I sinned like these certain people have sinned in the book of Jude? This is one way that, that this passage can point out a sin in our life. Are you acting like these kind of people? All right, let's, let's go back and think then. Does it have any assumptions that I don't share? That's question number two. Question two of application, does it have assumptions that I don't share? All right, obviously, Jude is making an assumption here. What assumption is he making? He's saying that there are people within the church that aren't true believers, Right, what is it? He says, there are certain people who have crept in unnoticed who are doing bad stuff. Do you agree with that? Do you believe that there could be people within a church body, within the church as a whole, that, is, that aren't true believers? Does it challenge you to think about that? Are you prone to thinking that if somebody's involved in the church, they must be a believer? That's one assumption that he seems to have. Another assumption we might note um, is that all believers are called to contending for the faith. Right? We may say, well, that's, you know, I'll just do my own personal faith kind of thing. That's somebody else's job to, to call out the false teacher. It's somebody else's job to deal with that bad person over there, right? That's somebody else's job. But he's not singling out any specific group in the church. He's saying, he's writing to literally those who are called. If you're a believer, that's you. Right? So we have to share his assumption here. He's talking to you. Third question, is there a command to obey in this passage? What is Jude's command here? All right, I think we can find it pretty well summarized in verse 3. 
See it there? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. You see that there in blue? That's the, that's the point. That's the command. He wants us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. But he doesn't just say, contend for the faith. Talk to you later, Jude. And then leave it at that, right? That's not how he writes the letter. No, he goes on and he says, here's how you do it. And so in verse 17, how does he tell us how to do this? Let's look. All right. First, you see up there in verse 17, marked with little number one, you must remember. Okay, so that's one way that we are able to do this contending for the faith. Remember. Remember that the apostles told us that people like this would be here. Remember God's word to, as, as he's delivered it to us. Then in verse 21, what does he say? He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. You see that? That's the number two there. So this is saying, how do I contend? How do I contend? First, I remember the truth of God that, that he has given to me, and then I keep myself in the love of God. But he doesn't just say, keep yourself in the love of God. He even tells us how to keep. What does he say there? Number one, in a little yellow, uh, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Number two, praying in the Holy Spirit. And number three, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so he's given us a command. He said, contend for the faith. And he said, here's how you can contend. Remember and keep yourselves. And here's how you can keep yourselves. Build yourself up in the faith. Pray and wait for the mercy of, of Christ. And then we see another command. What does he say? He says, now that you are contending, help others contend. And in verse 22, he says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. Right, so now he's saying... You're contending, help these other people who are struggling. Help the doubter. Help that person who's caught in the fire, right? Snatch them out and tell them to contend. Okay, those are the commands he's telling us. So the question you would say, applying this to your life, are you following these commands? Are you doing these things? Are you contending for the faith? Are you remembering? Are you keeping yourself? Are you praying? Are you seeking to understand God's word? These are all the questions you're asking yourself for application. Next one here. Is there encouragement for me in this text? Now, at first, we might say it's kind of difficult to find encouragement in a text that's all about these certain people, these malcontents, these grumblers, these uh, bad folks within the church, but there certainly is encouragement. First, uh, I think we can be generally encouraged by the fact that God inspired men like Jude to warn and exhort us in this way, uh, and that his letter to these people, these Christians at this time, has lasted for two millennia. Right? That's pretty encouraging to us to know that God in his wisdom gave us this information, this command, and told us to do this, and that it's still here for us to see and read and be encouraged by and be challenged by. Second, I think that we're encouraged because Jude reminds us that even in the presence, that the presence of these certain people, right, these bad guys, these, uh, what else does he call them? These are fun names. Um, unreasoning animals. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, what does he say? He says that they were predicted. He says that the apostles predicted that they were going to be here. Even Jesus himself said that they were going to be there, right? And Jesus, all of Jesus' parables, not all of them, but many of Jesus' parables were about, like, the field that was sown with the wheat and the tares in it, right? It's like, they're there together, and we're going <laughs> to fix it when the harvest comes. 
So we've been promised that this is going to be true. And so that encourages us to know, all right, this isn't something that was unexpected. This isn't unplanned. This is part of God's purpose here in his church to have these certain people for some reason. And third, and I think this is the biggest encouragement, is in verse 24. You see that there at the end? Back Way back in, um, well, not way back. In verse 21, Jude had told us, what does he say? Keep yourselves in the love of God. And then in verse 24, he says that that is God who is able to keep us from stumbling. He even said way back in verse 1, jump back over there real quick. What does he say? That we're called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. This theme of keeping is here. Okay, so when he tells us to keep, he's not saying you can do that all by yourself. He's not saying, and I want you to keep yourself in the love of God, and there will be no external help at all. Right? In fact, what he's saying is that God is the one who's able to keep us. God is the one who sustains us and empowers us for this work of contending for the faith. It's not something we're just doing in our own power. That's very encouraging. Should be. Next question, is there a promise for me? Is there a promise? I think the promise and encouragement kind of go hand in hand. We've been promised that there are going to be scoffers and loudmouths and boasters and grumblers and all that kind of stuff who sneak into church. But we've also been promised that by building ourselves up in the faith, by praying, by waiting for the mercy of Jesus, by doing these things, right, God is keeping us. And that we will be kept in his love and ultimately will attain eternal life. Right? Where's that in verse 21? Keep yourselves waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the goal. That's the end here. Right? If we're keeping, if we're staying, if God is keeping us in his love, that's the end goal. We, we arrive at eternal life. That's a promise. There's a promise for us in this text that we're going to arrive at eternal life. And this promise is secure because... God is able to keep us. Next question. Does this text teach us something about God? Well, I think the biggest thing it teaches us is that he's in control. Right? Because he knew that these malcontents, there it is, malcontents, grumblers, these guys, he knew that they were going to be here. He's not surprised by them. In fact, the text even says, jump back over here, even says, these certain people crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Not only did God know about it, he literally has a purpose for it. He designated them for this purpose, which that can be hard enough for it. We, we struggle to understand that sometimes. But he has a purpose for these kind of people being within the church. We also see that he's going to deal with them. We learn something about God. He's a God of justice, a God of wrath and judgment. Right? All of these Old Testament quotes in verses 5 through 14, every one of these, you see them marked in yellow there, all of these Old Testament quotes are giving examples of Old Testament people who were bad, bad dudes, were malcontents and grumblers, that kind of person, the kind of people that he's saying have snuck into the church. Okay? All of these Old Testament passages are giving examples of people like that who received God's judgment. The whole point of him quoting those things is to say, these guys are doing these things but just like all of these Old Testament examples that I'm giving you, the angels who fell, the people who left the land of Egypt who were whining and crying, the uh, people who walked the way of Cain, all of those people who did those things felt God's judgment. They received his wrath. And these malcontents, these, these people, right, these people are going to receive the same kind of thing if they continue in that way. 
That teaches us something about God. And of course, it also teaches us, as we've already mentioned, that he's the one who's able to keep us, right? The one who's able to keep us from stumbling. Uh, And then we see uh, at the very end in verse 25, we see ultimately that it's his glory. It's all about his glory. The glory all belongs to him for this. We're told to contend. We're told how to contend. We're told that these people are going to be here and they're going to give us trouble. But ultimately, we see that the glory is for God alone. He receives the glory for everything. Next question, does it teach me something about myself? All right, well, first off, if we believe, if we recognize that this you here in the text that's in red you see up there, if this you is us, if the recipient of this letter includes the church universal, all believers, which we've already talked about in the interpretation section that it does, then this letter teaches us a good deal about us. If we know that that's us, then that's us. First off, we know, it tells us in verse 1 that we're called. Right? And you remember what Paul says. This is another place where we help, you know, Scripture helps interpret Scripture. What does uh, Paul say about those who are called? Those who are called are also justified, right? Those who be justified also sanctified. Those who are sanctified also glorified. There's this beautiful chain. So if you're called, you're secure. And that's a great thing for us to know about us. Second, and this is not quite as good of a thing, we see down in verse 5, I want to remind you. Why might we need to be reminded? Because we're really good at forgetting, right? And so, We need to remember what God has said, also in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved. So we learn something about us. We're forgetful. We need to remember. We need to be reminded. Third, it reminds us or helps us see that we need to keep ourselves in God's love. And there's a way that we can do that by building ourselves up in the faith, by praying in the Spirit, waiting for Jesus. We already talked about that section just a second ago. And then fourth, we also see that God keeps us. Us. We're learning something about us. We're learning that God is the one who's doing the keeping. He's able to keep us in his love. It's too early. I have to, everybody's just like glazed over. That's wonderful. Wake up! All right, next question. What evidence does this give me for my faith? What evidence for my faith does this give me? One of the key evidences, okay, that I think we can see is there is a fulfilled prophecy. Okay, one of the, if, we're, if you're trying to understand, like, okay, how can I trust that my faith is true? One of the big ones, if you think about apologetics, one of the big ones is fulfilled prophecy. We see all these prophecies of the Old Testament, and then they're fulfilled in the New Testament, in Christ specifically. Okay, so we can just look at the fact here in this text and say, Jude points out how the apostles are predicting the presence of these certain people, right? Long ago, the apostles predicted it. You must remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus there in verse 17. They're going to be here. They said in the last time they're going to be scoffers following their ungodly passions. They'll cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. They're going to be there. And they are here. That gives us confidence that our faith is true. It's true. It's accurate. It was accurate for the people that Jude was writing to directly. And it's accurate for us now. It has been accurate throughout the course of the church over the past 2,000 years. It's not anything new. We can also see, and this is a big thing, 
that encourages our faith, helps us give confidence in our faith. God has preserved the church in spite of these guys. These certain people have been coming in and been coming in. They've been grumbling. They've been boasting. They've been showing favoritism. They've been doing all kinds of dirty, rotten stuff. And yet God, in his wisdom and sovereignty and power, has preserved the church in spite of them. That strengthens our faith because we know that what we're doing here isn't in vain. We know that like us contending for our faith, us fighting, is not for nothing. God is going to succeed. He's going to win the day. The church is going to overcome. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. Nothing can. So, next question. What is the next question here? What will I do differently because of this text? Hopefully, you can see how you should live differently because of this text. Um, are you contending for the faith earnestly, right? That'd be a question you could ask yourself. Are you remembering that they're going to be troublemakers? Are you surprised when somebody comes along who's grumbling? Does that surprise you? You shouldn't. Jude's telling us, hey, this isn't new. The apostles said it was going to happen. Jesus told us it was going to happen. Are you building yourself up in the word? Right? That's how he tells us that we can keep ourselves. He says here, Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. How can you do that? I think a great way to build yourself up in the faith is to read the Bible and study it and interpret it and apply it, right? This, what we're doing right now, this is what you can do to build yourself up in the faith. Uh, Are you praying steadfastly? That's the other way he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Do you pray regularly and earnestly? Are you looking towards Christ's work on the cross, right? Third thing here, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We're looking to him, not to anything we do, not to some, you know, great warrior who's going to come into the church and kick out all these bad guys tomorrow, right? Jesus could do that if he wanted to, Uh, but we're waiting for Christ to come. We're waiting for his mercy to take care of it. Then, are you actively showing mercy to those who are doubting, right? There in verse 22, Are you prone to kind of like just kind of dismiss somebody who's struggling with something? Uh, Are you prone to kind of silently judge them maybe? Like, can't believe you would struggle with that, right? Are you striving to snatch people out of the fire? Are you actively proclaiming the gospel? Are you preaching to others? Are you opposing even the garment stained by the flesh? Or are you just kind of wearing fleshly stuff around you all the time, right? Do you clothe your life in fleshly stuff? All of these are ways that you're keeping, right? Are you keeping yourself? Are you trusting in God's power to keep you? Those are the questions of application here that should change how we live. Hopefully, if you're reading this text, you don't walk away from it going like, yep, I'm good. Jude has given me this great command of how to contend for the faith, and I was doing every bit of it perfectly. Nailed it. right, if that's the case, you didn't understand it, honestly. If that's the case, you didn't understand what the text said, because If you're really reading this and understanding how to apply it, it should change something about how you're living. It should change something. Can you imagine walking by a mirror, looking in it and going, yeah, perfect. Right? That's the example that we're given here in James, right? It's like looking in a mirror and saying, okay, walking away and then forgetting what you looked like even. We don't do that. We look in a mirror and then we change something. When you look at God's word, it should change something. All right, next question, how can I model or share 
this truth to encourage others. This text is actually pretty unique in terms of this question because Jude actually literally addresses that. He actually says, you know, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So that's really helpful because uh, it literally tells us that we can help others contend by doing these things. Um, but in a larger sense, we could also say that this text is showing us um, the ultimate end for troublemakers and grumblers, right? Because we may meet somebody who's being a grumbler and we could use this text to say, hey man, um, you're acting like this guy. You see these certain people here in the book of Jude? Do you see how they're depicted and how the Old Testament says uh, that they're going to end up? You don't want to be like that. Think about how you're being, right? We should also, and should, could also, should also, um, live lives which show how we're contending for the faith. And this is an example for um, our kids, an example for our spouse, an example for other believers in our lives, those who are discipling, those who just see us living our lives maybe. Right? You want to show them what contending for the faith would look like. Model Bible study, model prayer, model Christ-centered living. Uh, teach these truths in this passage to our kids. Help them apply it. Share it with our friends. Help them apply it. Right? There's all kinds of ways that we can go about sharing this with others. As a church body, we ought to be encouraging one another to contend for the faith. We ought to deal with the certain people who stir up trouble and cause division. Right? We ought to address those things as a body. And all, we ought to be reminding our families, our church brothers and sisters, that God is in control, right? And that he's promised to keep us secure, but that we have a role, that we have a job to do to contend for the faith. All right, so to conclude, obviously, we've worked through this process really quickly. This was not meant to be, um, you know, exhaustive, Obviously, you could spend a whole lot more time dealing with every little aspect, every verse of Jude and get a lot more out of it than we just talked about. The goal here this time was to help you understand the process, to help you think through, okay, if I'm sitting down with the text of Scripture, I observe these important things in it, I interpret what they mean in light of the context, in light of the genre, in light of all this other stuff, and then I want to apply it to my life. And these are just some tools, just some helpful little things that you can use, hopefully, to apply this text to your life. And hopefully it's just showing you that Bible study doesn't have to be like this daunting, terrifying, difficult thing. There can be difficult passages for sure, um, but this method, this inductive Bible study method, gives us tools to systematically study what the Bible says. Um, so anyway, as you're trying to use your Bible study, I hope that these guidelines will be helpful to you. But remember, these are tools, not rules, okay? This is not one of those things where it's like, oh, but I have to do this first, or I have to go by this list of questions, right? That's not the point. If that's what you're doing, then that's not really helpful. Um, make it your own. The most important thing is study the Word, practice it, get into it, and spend time in the text. That's the great thing about the inductive method, is it forces you to actually spend time in the Bible. It forces you. You can't go through these steps of observation and interpretation without spending time looking at what the Word says. That's really, really important. And that's God's Word. It has the power to change us, and I hope that it changes you. Let's pray again before uh, we'll have a few minutes. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I pray that you will um, use these tools that we've talked about this morning. pray that you'll help uh, those who have heard to grow and to better study your word in light of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all.